Welcome to the Radioactive Summer Break on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and tonight on the show, community conversations with the folks at the International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City, which is getting ready to help refugees that may be coming to Utah as they are evacuated from Afghanistan amidst the U.S. military withdrawal. Also, public art and community dialogue through that art as we celebrate 90 years of the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art with Executive Director Laura Hurtado, a fitting subject given the Utah Arts Festival this weekend. And Darlene McDonald is back with an update on Saturday's March On for voting rights here in Utah. If you want to know why the battle is never ending, Darlene will have a Founding Fathers history lesson for us, as well as the lineup of speakers and performers for the march, which starts at 10 a.m. Saturday at the Utah Capitol. The summer break is pre-recorded, as you all know, so I'm actually up at the Utah Capitol tonight with several groups rallying for Women's Equality Day. With that in mind, here's Roseanne Cash, Crawl into the Promised Land, on KRCL 90.9. This is the Radioactive Summer Break. I'm Laura Jones, and earlier today I Zoomed with Darlene McDonald of the One Utah Project for an update on Saturday's March On for voting rights here in Utah. Okay, my name is Darlene McDonald, and I am the chair of the One Utah Project, who is um, sponsoring this march with the March on for Voting Rights, which is a national organization. Last we spoke, you were on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama, and you are back in Utah getting ready for Saturday's march. It's a sister march to larger ones going on across the country, other sister marches as well. So what is the lineup? What is the timeline for Saturday? Uh, the, we have such an exciting lineup, and I am pleased to share it with you. We will have my favorite, favorite performer, Didi. Didi Darby Duffin. That's fantastic. Yes. Yes, we will have Didi. Um, she will sing a, a solo for us. We will also have the phenomenal John Draper perform for us as well. I don't know if you had the opportunity to hear John. Not yet. John does um, some, he's he's just amazing. He does some blues tunes. Um, He does some folk, but I've mostly um, have heard him play some blues tunes. So he's going to be performing as well. And we also have a slam poet that's going to be a performance spoken word for us. And we have some phenomenal speakers. We have um, Pastor Marlon Lynch that will be um, speaking. We have our, I call him our resident historian, Robert Birch. He will be speaking as well. Sema Hadithi is new organization. Yes, yes. Robert is just a wealth of information and Utah is very, very, very fortunate to have him here. We also have, of course, the phenomenal, my mentors, and and I just love when I'm around them, is um, Miss Betty Sawyer, as well as Miss Janetta Williams as well. You got Ogden and Salt Lake, all of Utah, Nevada and Idaho, NAACP right there (laughs) in those two women. Yes. And just the experience with those two women is I mean, it's just an honor whenever I share stage with them and I learn so much from them. So it's it's a privilege to just be able to be in their presence. So, yes. So that's who we have. We have a couple more speakers. We're still getting everything confirmed, but we we do plan on having a couple more speakers as well. 
Well, this is a sister march to the March on for Voting Rights happening in Washington, D.C. on Saturday. And of course, it's the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, now famous um, I Have a Dream speech. And we talked about this last time we spoke while you were in Alabama, but the importance of voting rights, it never diminishes. It never goes away. It only becomes more important. So what is it you want about, uh, people to know about coming to this march uh, in Salt Lake City and uh, marching on for voting rights here? The, the biggest thing that I, I want people to know that this is not just something for African-Americans. Voting rights is for everyone. And when you attack voting rights, you are attacking the heart of our citizenship, the foundation of our democracy. Yes, we fought really, really hard for this, but we also need to preserve our democracy. So this is a fight for all of us. This must be a bipartisan fight. This this is not just a one-sided fight. Yes, 2020 was an historic turnout election. It was an historic turnout election. There were people motivated to vote, risk their lives to vote, to stand in line for 11 hours in some states to cast a ballot. And there were also times where people, I mean, and we were in the middle of a pandemic and people were showing up in full hazmat suits. (laughs) to vote and they were going to risk everything to cast that ballot. And that's wonderful, but it's also shame on us that we put people through that. We need to make it easier for people to vote, not harder. And unfortunately, but according to the Brennan Center, 18 states have passed at least 30 laws to make it harder for Americans to vote. You talked about people standing in these long lines for hours on end. Some of those bills have been, you can't give people water. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about me standing in line for 11 hours and how many bathroom breaks I might need. And will I be (laughs) able to get back in line if the polls have closed? And that's the thing. I believe in some of those states, they're making it impossible that you can't get back in line. This is not new. Unfortunately, suffrage, universal suffrage, and the fight for universal suffrage is not new in this country. I, I don't know if it was you I was speaking to about this, but but people have to remember the very first president of the United States, George Washington, we had a population of 2.5 million people and only 150,000 people voted. That's because it was only 150,000 eligible 21-year-old white men who were property owners who were eligible to vote. That was it. That's what suffrage has been in this country. And this has been a fight since the foundation and the founding of this country for all people, for all citizens, and even for the fight for citizenship under the 14th Amendment. And like I said, the foundation of this country, citizenship, as well as the right to vote. And we are fighting for it. We are marching for it. And we're going to keep marching for it until it gets easier, not harder. (laughs) So what time Saturday and where? We are going to meet at the Capitol, South Side, Capitol, uh, Capitol Building, Salt Lake City, 
10 a.m. The program will start at 10 a.m. We are going to march from the Capitol down to Washington Square, the west side of Washington Square. And there's a treat for everyone. Yes, <laughs> the Utah Arts Festival is happening at the same time. So you come, there just might be a treat for you. Ooh, implying something <laughs> we cannot say out loud. Well, where can people get more details, Darlene? You can get more details. There's a Facebook page, a March on for Voting Rights. Utah. There's Utah, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. March on for Voting Rights, um, Utah. You can also go to my website, which is oneutp.org. There's a link on that homepage that will take you to the Get Involved page. And that is where you'll find more information on the march. Thank you, Darlene. Before you hit the Arts Festival on Saturday, why don't you head on up to the Capitol at 10 a.m. for the March on for Voting Rights, Utah. With that in mind, it's The Roots featuring TV on the radio. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. On KRCL 90.9. For you dog lovers out there, happy National Dog Day. Here's a three quick picks treat for all of you. Hi, this is Catherine Weller of Weller Bookworks in Trolley Square with three quick picks on the dog days of summer. Pick number one is a dog that used to be famous and People still say his name sometimes, but there is a lot to know about Rin Tin Tin. This book by Susan Orlean, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend, really talks about Rin Tin Tin, the dog that was used in battle, because dogs are used by the military in warfare, rescued from that at the end of warfare, and moved into outreach with Hollywood and beyond. It's a great look at the dog in society and is absolutely fascinating. Pick number two is Year of the Dogs by Vincent J. Moosey. This is a photographic book that is charming and lovely. This person photographed dogs every day of the year. So he, he has a broad range of dogs across breeds, including um, Heinz 57 dogs and including dogs with disabilities. He's got text about each one of them, their characters and the interactions with them. It is a charming book to dip in and out of a great gift for the dog lover in your life. And finally, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, a novel by Mark Haddon, in which a young autistic boy in London finds a dog who has been murdered, a neighbor's dog, murdered with a pitchfork. And he is accused of the murder. So he goes about being a detective to find out who killed that dog. And it's absolutely a beautiful novel because it it delves into why he, as a person on the autism spectrum, likes dogs. They're reliable. They're dependable. Uh, you don't do a lot of guessing with them. And what it is that helps him navigate through the world and navigate his detective story in The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. I'm Catherine Weller of Weller Bookworks in Trolley Square. All of my picks are on our shelves now. This has been my three quick picks on the dog days of summer for KRCL. You're listening to the Radioactive Summer Break, community conversations and more music weeknights at 6 
this summer on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and still to come this hour, 90 years of art with Umoka. With more questions about how to help Afghan refugees, we continue our coverage with a conversation with the folks over at the International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City. My name is Shahida Safi, and I work with the IRC in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I am the College and Career Readiness Specialist. My name is Natalie Algeri. I'm the Executive Director for the International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City. So, Natalie, if we could start with you and talk about the IRC in Salt Lake City in light of what is happening in Afghanistan and your expectations of helping people as they get resettled in our country, let alone uh, Utah, as this influx of refugees um, coming out of Afghanistan occurs. So the IRC is one of two resettlement agencies that's here in Utah. Catholic Community Services is the other, and we work in close concert and coordination with one another um, to welcome refugees into into our state. Um, And the IRC is the first face that people see. Um, Our staff members welcome individuals at the airport when they arrive, um, ensure that people have affordable um, housing that's furnished, get kids enrolled in school, help families um, secure employment and healthcare appointments and all types of things just to ensure that they have um, stable footing to begin a new life here in Utah. And so we're really um, you know, eager and prepared and ready to welcome families from Afghanistan when they begin to arrive, um, which we should be seeing here in the coming um, days and weeks um, and uh, to, through our resettlement programming. Now, do you have any expectation of the numbers of folks coming to Utah? You know, we don't have any um, uh, number, concrete numbers in place right now. Um, it's uh, very um, kind of day by day, things are changing. And as families are getting processed, um, the first priority is to, to try to reunite families with where they might have um, a U.S. tie, a family member or somebody that they know in a community um, for resettlement. Um, and so that happens all across the country. Um, and we have uh, quite a few families who are, um, you know, hoping to see their relatives uh, join them in Utah, um, but we don't have any clear numbers at this point. Shahida, you not only work for the IRC, but this could get quite personal. You're from Afghanistan. Yes, correct. I am. I moved uh, to the United States in 2002, so I grew up here, but Afghanistan is home for me. So as you're looking at this from afar and anticipating helping people, should they come to Utah, what are what are your concerns or what can you share that folks might go through and what the IRC stands ready to help with? Well, it's going to be just like any refugee. They're going to have so much fear of coming to this new world, basically, and um, starting all over from you know zero and building their lives up. And that's going to be tough on them. But Um, Like Natalie said, if they have a tie here, then it's a little bit easy and it's a little bit more comforting for them. So we're here to help them in any sort of way that we can to make them feel more safe, more welcomed. Can you go back to yourself in 2002? I don't know the circumstances under which you came to the United States, but I'm guessing as a small child, it was still a lot of fear and curiosity at the same time. What does yourself from 2002 want people to know about what children in particular may need from the community? I would say just because at the time that we came, um, 9-11 recently happened. So there was a lot of hatred in people's hearts um, for Muslims. So I would say, you know, just the respect and um, comfort that people can give, um, you know, 
that is a lot to, it means a lot to them. You know, as a child, I came and everything was completely new. People, you know, I've never seen in my life and just kind of, I, I didn't feel like I belonged. You know, I was an outsider. And so just, you know, including them in everything um, would make them feel a lot more comfortable instead of treating them like, you know, um, an outsider. Utahns are known for their volunteerism and their generosity, but we aren't immune from the prejudices that we have or the preconceptions we have about people outside of our own small neighborhoods, perhaps. So Natalie, how can people help? What does the IRC need from the community in Salt Lake City right now? Well, um, I, you know, thank you for, for recognizing that. And I think our community has changed quite a bit in the last uh, 10 to 12 years. Um, and that, that tone of welcoming has, um, has, has increased, as we know, with uh, Governor Cox's just recent, most recent statements in terms of, um, you know, commitments to, um, to, to supporting refugees who are, um, who are, who are fleeing Afghanistan and will be making their homes in, in Utah. Um, and, and I think um, one thing is um, a smiling face and being able to actually welcome and warmly embrace um, our newest community members or newest Americans um, is, is first and foremost. And so increasing dialogue and awareness and understanding of who refugees are, um, the circumstances that they're coming from and the, the vibrancy that they add to our community um, as, as, uh, as our neighbors and friends and colleagues um, is, is number one. I think that's what we need the most. Um, apart from that, the IRC in Salt Lake City has um, lots of opportunities for engagement um, to support the Afghan refugees who will be coming as well as other refugees um, that we're, we're seeing increased arrivals from. Um, and there's more information on our website, uh, which is rescue.org forward slash Salt Lake City. There are four specific ways that people can engage. They can donate both monetary and in-kind. People can sign up to volunteer with our organization um, to, to serve in a variety of capacity and roles. Um, people can um, advocate um, for uh, refugees and specifically for this situation. We are wanting to ensure that the current administration offers pathways for refugee resettlement um, beyond um, the special immigrant visa holders um, who are those who worked with the US military, which are high priority and, um, and, and very important. But there are other people who will be left behind as well, who are also in dire circumstances and in need of safety. Uh, refugees from Afghanistan and other parts of the world are coming to Utah at a time when our housing market is so incredibly tight. Homes, mm -hmm. rentals, uh, very costly. And in speaking with Aidan Batar at Catholic Community Services of Utah recently, he talked about the need for folks to open their homes, um, perhaps host uh, families or be a foster family if the situation occurs. What is it uh, that IRC needs in that regard? Um, well, uh, in, a, in addition to the temporary housing, you know, long-term um, housing is, is really important. Um, landlords who partner with refugee resettlement organizations are a very special type of landlord because they are um, willing to, to rent to refugees 
um, kind of sight unseen, you know, just uh, coming in, uh, knowing the cause that we're behind and that they're part of a reputable organization like the IRC or Catholic Community Services. We secure housing even before people arrive um, within days of their arrival. Um, and so people who are interested in providing long-term rentals uh, for affordable housing, six to 12 months is, is certainly a need. Um, along with the community, you know, we are uh, cognizant of the of the housing challenges that are that are across the board, um, but we do have a network of really um, really great relationships and, and those who who believe in um, the, the causes that we're working for. Um, the IRC on the temporary housing front works with um, Airbnb. We have a national partnership um, where Airbnb hosts can open their homes um, for rentals um, during those those first few days or or week or so while we're securing housing for individuals. Especially important with the Afghan uh, refugees because we're only getting a day or two's notice before they arrive. And so that's not enough time for us to be able to secure an apartment and get it completely furnished. And so there will be a need for more local Airbnb hosts who are um, interested and willing in, um, in partnering with the IRC on that front. The immediate needs are apparent. There is a crisis. It is uh, a human tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes. But then there's what happens after the cameras go away and folks have to adjust to their new homes, um, pick a path forward. And you have several programs to work with refugees here in Salt Lake City. Can you briefly talk about the status of those programs and how you might have to adjust as more people come here? Sure. Well, we're very fortunate at the IRC to have over 20 different programs within our office, um, supported by 80 different staff members and a thousand different volunteers that we work with annually. So we have really great network of support that helps our programs, you know, sustain and um, and and be available to new refugee arrivals and to those who are are not so new arrivals but looking to purchase a home or build assets or do other things um, to secure their their future. Um, and so immediately we we of course have have our case management services, which are available to refugees for up to 24 months. Um, that is a program that is unique to Utah, um, that all refugees who are resettled here receive that 24 months of case management. But we also have teams within that 24 months who are also um, promoting health access and doing health education, um, um, enrolling kids in school and helping parents learn to navigate, you know, the online school platforms or how to get to school, meet teachers, do parent-teacher conferences. Um, Shahida runs a program that's college and, and career readiness um, that that she can speak to, which is helping young young people prepare uh, to enter enter um, uh, college or, or other workforce opportunities. So there's a variety of things that that we're doing, um, and really meet the client where they're at with what their interests are, what their future goals are, and then we're able to plug in um, the different programs that we have to help people achieve those goals. Shahida, talk a bit about your college and career readiness program and working with folks. I'm guessing it's particularly rewarding. It really is. Um, so I actually worked at the financial aid office at the University of Utah before I came here at the IRC. So it was it fit in perfectly because I was on the inside knowing, you know, what services to provide and all of that and what kind of documents that they might need. So when I am on this other end of the spectrum, then what I can do is tell them ahead of time, oh, these are the documents that you're going to need um, when you fill out your FAFSA let me help you with your resume and let's get you started on it. So that way, when you're looking for a job, it's easier to, you know, have those opportunities. Um, it's just 
being there and helping them with the little things, um, you know, that will make a big difference in the future. So, you know, like how, where they can get their transcripts from and how, um, how early would they order them, you know, and applying for scholarships, like funds is a big giant thing for them, you know, being able to finish their um, education, but they need the proper funds to be able to do that. So um, assisting them in all sorts of ways to get them ready, whether they want to go, you know, to school or whether they want to go pursue um, a career. And FAFSA being the free application for federal student aid and uh, our bureaucracy, a complete mystery to me <laughs> oftentimes. <laughs> you can only imagine how difficult that is to navigate as uh, someone coming to this country, fleeing the violence of their of their home country. And I, I, I kind of wanted to hear a little bit more from you, Shahida. I know you were just a child when, when you came here, but as you look at this and perhaps you hear from family and friends or, or watching the news, what are, what are you hearing? What are the concerns about the local Afghan uh, community here about what's going on? Um, well, at the beginning, we weren't um, hearing that much, but what's going on now, it's it's a little bit more concerning. They're saying that, you know, um, behind cameras, the Taliban are going in, you know, hurting people behind closed doors and, you know, pulling people out of their own homes and invading their privacy and things like that. What their main concern is that things are just going to go back to, you know, the first time that the Taliban took over and they don't, they don't have hope and that's what's missing from them. You know, they don't have hope of living. Um, you know, what they want to do is build their lives. And right now they feel like everything is just getting shut down. Schools are getting shut down. Banks are getting shut down. Everything is just shutting down for them. And right now they're in need of any sort of help. People are, you know, all over the streets. They're losing their families. They're losing their houses. They're losing everything that they have built over there um, to call their, you know, place a home, but now it's just destroyed and, you know, they're shattered. Mm. It's hard to imagine even having the nightly news to look at and see it for ourselves. So I'm very grateful that the IRC in Salt Lake City is here and stands ready to help and that our listeners can can support the work that you do. And one of the ways that I think is really helpful is one of my favorite programs that you do, and that's the Spice Kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about that and how people can support Spice Kitchen, Natalie? Sure. Thank you. Um, Spice Kitchen Incubator is our food entrepreneurship program where we're helping, um, you know, uh, refugees and other new Americans who would like to start a food business. Um, one of the easiest ways to support Spice Kitchen is to order Spice to Go on Thursday evenings. You can place your order early in the week um, and just check out our website at spicekitchenincubator.org. Um, and we feature meals from a variety of chefs from all over the world. Um, and uh, you can get a warm meal to take home to your family that night. Um, of course, there's other opportunities to engage with Spice Kitchen um, and just following us on social media, you'll stay up to date on where uh, the entrepreneurs are at or special events that we have coming up or ways to donate and volunteer with the with that, with that program specifically. Now, before COVID, there were things in motion to expand Spice Kitchen and gain more of its own independence. And I, it may not be ready to talk about right now, but good <laughs> things are coming for Spice Kitchen. Good things are coming for Spice Kitchen. Um, we will have a new home here in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, more we'll uh, be able to share more um, in the coming in the coming weeks. But we are um, excited that that we're we're making progress on that effort, and um, and it will be a, a fabulous space. Tied to Spice Kitchen, or perhaps parallel, is the farming program, New Roots. How's that doing this summer? 
New Roots is um, incredible. Um, this the farmers are are um, supplementing their income in the thousands um, this year, which is huge um, via the different farmers markets that we're running, uh, the community supported agriculture boxes, the CSA boxes that are being distributed, and then of course all of our commercial um, sales that we do to places like Whole Foods and other restaurants in the community. Um, and so our farms are thriving, uh, farmers are thriving. We have um, really incredible uh, additional services that are happening um, where we're able to address some of the food security needs within the community and providing fresh produce boxes um, to our community's most vulnerable individuals. So um, so really great things happening there as well. Shahida and Natalie, thank you so much for giving us some time today and sharing with our listeners the work you do, but also how they can get involved. I think that's one of the hard things um, for me is going, how can I help without you know, imposing or making things worse. Oftentimes when there's a crisis, the second crisis is all the stuff that gets thrown at organizations, the in-kind donations. So it's really important to check out what organizations like IRC and Salt Lake City need and then apply your resources and your time. So what's the website again, Natalie, where people can get up to speed and help? It's rescue.org forward slash Salt Lake City. Um, we also post updates on our on our Facebook page. And so that's IRC Salt Lake City. Um, and both of those places are great, great ways to learn about how you can engage and support our efforts and response efforts. Natalie and Shahida, thank you so much. Have a great day. And please know that uh, we want to hear back and, and get you on some more as this unfolds, but also in support of all the great work you do from New Roots and Spice Kitchen and all the services. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Shahida and Natalie. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City and their Spice Kitchen to Go program, one of many ways they help refugees get resettled here in Utah. That conversation leads me to this from Brian Wilson, Love and Mercy on KRCL. Thanks for listening to the Radioactive Summer Break tonight. I'm Laura Jones. With the Arts Festival going on this weekend, arts organizations are on my mind and how they're doing and adapting in our current times. The Utah Museum of Contemporary Art is celebrating its 90th birthday this year. To find out more, I spoke with their executive director. Sure, I'm Laura Allred Hurtado, and I'm the executive director of the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Umoka is turning, or has turned, 90. I never know if you celebrate your 90th in the year leading up to your 90th, or when you've turned 90. So maybe you can uh, you can uh, explain 90 years for Umoka for us. <laughs> yeah, so we were founded in 1931. So. Uh, uh, we have celebrated that we have turned 90 um, or are celebrating our 90th year this year. Um, we were founded in the middle of the Great Depression by a woman named Alta Jensen, um, who just believed in the independent spirit of art. She said, art in Utah can never be real or great until, until it can be what it wants to be. Um, and she was just, you know, a thoughtful, really progressive woman. Um, of, in her age and, um, and still, I think her legacy still holds and um, we're still being, um, you know, uh, seeing it through, still asking those sort of same questions. And in fact, you have an exhibit on now, Umoka Contemporary since 1931. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the exhibition celebrates um, our 90 years. It shows artwork from um, each decade that we uh, that we have been showing art. Um, 
and uh, has work, um, you know, obviously starting back from the 30s, um, and then uh, ephemera, so brochures and uh, invitations and, um, you know, really wonderful stuff. There's this uh, uh, ticket to a a debate on the prohibition that's in the exhibition that's one of my very favorites because it shows that we were really invested in social issues of our day and, and, and setting, using the space to, as a, place for dialogue. Um, the member group, affinity group, we started off as the Art Barn and then our, our name changed to the Sully Guard Center and then to Umoka. And the affinity group in the very beginning was called the Barnstormers. And I, I just love that. I, there's, they're just so sweet uh, and interesting and um, and great. I, I, it's, it's so great to see so many of the names and faces and people and ideas that helped form our organization and that continue to form our organization. It's just such an amazing legacy. As you look at that 90 years of history, I'm guessing you see some themes, uh, social commentary that could be happening today that may have been part of 1931. Yeah, definitely. You know, they showed Diego Rivera in the early 30s, a year after he had been taken out, the mural that he had done um, uh, was surrounding around a lot of controversy around the Rockefeller building um, because of its communism and socialist tendencies that were expressed in it. Um, we showed Frida Kahlo a year later. Um, and, you know, the way the press was writing about her then um, was to say, you know, wife of famous painter dabbles in art. I mean, just really condescending, gross sort of things. And, um, you know, the fact that we um, showed both of their works, I think, is an indication of the the kind of dialogue and and questions we were willing to ask and the kind of controversy we were willing to engage with. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, um, shying away from those kind of big questions or, or, you know, or taking a precedent of a male artist or, or over a female artist. I think there was, there was, um, you know, some really important questions then that continue to matter today and, and are being asked by a different set of artists like Rivera and Kahlo are now household names, but um, certainly in the case of Kahlo, that was not the case then. Um, and, and I think sometimes that's the challenge with contemporary art. We're showing some really leading artists of our time that may take another 90 years before their names are recognized and the kind of ideas and notions they were exploring um, take resonance. What do you think the role is of Umoka today after 90 years, given the cultural environment that we're in, the zeitgeist of today? Yeah, I I think that's a great question. Um, You know, our mission says we believe in the power of the art of our time. And through programming, advocacy, and collaboration, we work with artists and communities to make the world, to build a better world. And, um, you know, it's not very often that people just like, spat off a mission statement and, and think that it means something, but it is something I think um, as a team and as an organization, we really believe in, we believe in the power of the art of our time to ask questions. I think, you know, so many of us right now, especially are going through experiences that um, are unprecedented and that really have us off the grid <laughs> in terms of what we thought we would be experiencing, um, you know, in February of 2020. <laughs> well, and it can make you go into stasis and, and just survival mode as, as well. So what are you seeing from artists? You have six new exhibits. 
on. Yeah, yeah. Six notes and it's seven if you include the new exhibition in the art truck. Um, you know, we just a variety of, of exhibitions. Um, there, there's a, a a beautiful show by an artist in resident named um Ji Young Lee Lodge. Um, and it's oh the title is like water change. Waterman changing, changing Thank eye. You. Is that it? <laughs> Yes, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at the <laughs> newsletter I get <laughs> from you, you guys. Thank you for having the cheat sheet. Waterman changing. Um, but it's the series of digital works that she created. She normally um, works in large scale drawings, but um, was unable to work in that format during the um, pandemic because she was home with kids. And, you know, that that uh, a piece of paper will not stay safe and sacred within the spaces. <laughs> um, so she's working online in a completely different medium. And um, there's this figure that's throughout all of it and they're being flushed with this water form. And she's really exploring that kind of um, the cacophony that comes from the internet. You, you see like a screen in all of them and the screen is both acting like a window and it's letting light in, it's letting in information. Um, and so she, she's talking about the ways in which um, the internet and technology provided a salve to the isolation of the pandemic but at the same time it was a salve that was also you know one that was drowning her you know that was just um you know all ideas all the time like Bo Berman in his really brilliant special inside um did a song about the internet that was said something like anything and everything all of the time <laughs> I that is just such a beautiful summary of kind of what we've been going through. And I think especially with the kind of political ideas and, and uh, all of the news and everyone really trying to persuade so many people and all of this just flood of information and flood of ideas and flood of bias that that's what the, the, the series really explores. And I find it just so powerful, such a great summary of, um, of that sense of kind of existential isolation and that sense of flood of ideas, but also, you know, trying to make sense of it there. They, the figures do kind of stand on their own feet. They're not completely drowned by it. And it, they're beautiful. One of the things I've always valued about you, Mocha, is the variety of artistic expression within the exhibits. You know, if you want something that's very cerebral, you're going to find it there. If you want something that's <laughs> very um, colloquial, listen to my $5 words, you're going to find it there. And I'm thinking of airspace, Daniel George and uh, the Marrow exhibition that's going on and it's drawing on the culinary and cultural heritage of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints that's another fancy way of talking about jello and funeral potatoes yeah exactly more good old-fashioned mormon food yeah it's it's really it's so fun to watch people go in there and say like oh i know that and i know that and that looks familiar and you know like they're like cross comparing funeral potato recipes to the ones they do it on, on their own but I, you know i think daniel george is showing is so smart because it's looking at um at the food as a kind of as at mormon food as a kind of folk art and and what i think is so interesting is there's something really um unique to it where you know it's an artistic expression but it's an it's an artistic expression done um with a kind of utility. So it's like, it's not a painting that would hang on the wall. It must serve dual functions. So it's beautiful to the sake of feeding people or, you know, and it, it has this like really affordable material, but, uh, you know, aesthetics in the service of um, 
self-reliance and on the service of others. And I, I think that, that there's, there's a lot to unpack there that that's really fascinating. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about all wall, which is working with Utah based artists and art collectives and reflecting public art. I know there's quite a controversy in the ninth and ninth neighborhood about a piece of public art. That's going to go into a roundabout with a giant whale coming out of it. So yeah. public art and th- it thrills people and it, here we go. Pisses people off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That the big gigantic whale in the room. <laughs> <laughs> An elephant. It's an 800 pound gorilla. It's a whale, but public art, it, it yeah. there's, there's never a neutral response. It seems to me. I, I, I think that's true. You know, we were really interested in exploring the way um, murals are often people's first exposure to art, and and that and that art is not a neutral thing. You know, people feel real passion about it, and yeah, as you can see with the debates on the whale. Um, but I, I, I think um, we were interested in the kind of democraticness of it. That you know some people may not feel or may not have this may not feel welcome or may not have ever visited a museum but their their connection uh, to art is very often first through murals and murals have such a power to um to make a community um and and to to have a place become a home um and to communicate ideas we uh jared and i the curator uh talked a lot about the way that they can they're, that they're so malleable you know there's been in addition to the, the whale you know there's been so many discussions about you know these confederate monuments in in um you know throughout the south and, and other places that are these large-scale public sculptures that you know took years to place and were placed in really politically uh uh, specific times, uh, loaded times, um, and that murals, you know, in their malleability, in the kind of relatively affordableness of their material and, and the like blank wall kind of approach, you know, they can go up and they can go down and they can respond and that, that they, they're so, they're living the way that a city is living there. They're not stagnant. Um, You've got murals can, commenting on uh, police reform in our own community on Third West and exactly. 800 South in Salt Lake. They are community conversation starters or um, fights in some cases. Exactly. And, and that project, you know, just sprung up. It's not like, you know, there, it's not like there was, there was no philanthropic like- organization asking for submissions. Exactly. Exactly. The, the, yeah. No committee, no bureaucratic uh, process. It was, you know, I think it came from a real place of pain and to say enough and we need, this needs visibility. And I think there's something really beautiful and powerful about that and, and, um, and, and, and quite smart. And, and I think that's what murals can do. Uh, there, there's one mural um, by a creative partnership, uh, Danae Shandon and Chuck Landvatter um, that's talking about the uh, the Native American schools and and really pointing a lot of fingers and asking quite a lot of questions about the injustice of those schools and the kind of rhetoric that was formed around them when they were uh, made and. So that one is in the main gallery. So we're talking not posterized images. We're talking murals, big and beautiful and bold. They're, they're huge. They are overwhelming. They are, they're really beautiful. And, you know, one of the things that was so amazing to watch is to see them come 
and be made there on site. They were all painted right on the wall, um, all done in person. I mean, over a two week period, it just, we didn't sleep, the artists didn't sleep. It was just an amazing process to watch unfold and and just such talented artists. Um, so that's hanging until January 8th of 2022. What happens yeah. to these murals after? Oh, it's horrifying. We paint over them. Oh my <laughs> Lord. Okay, somebody has to document them and create posters after all. I know. I know. There, there's a couple in particular that people have said, like, I want a postcard of this or can I buy this? I'm like, well, it, I mean, it's on the wall. <laughs> well, another explanation or reason why after 90 years, Yumoka is still so vital to our community, our quality of life and the conversations that we have um, how can people get more details, find your hours, plan a trip? Yeah, we're open um, Wednesday through Saturday, 11 to 6 on Fridays late till 9. Um, Instagram is great and our website is great. All that information is there. We're free and open to the public. So come, come, uh, come with you and everyone you love and your neighbor and next door neighbor and, you know, people you're just getting to know. Uh, it's a great place to explore. There's so many interesting things to see. Yeah, we'd love to have you there. Laura Allred Hurtado of the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. And if you're coming down to the Utah Arts Festival this weekend, make some time to stop by Umoka too. It's over at 20 South West Temple in Salt Lake City, right next to Abravanel Hall. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7, Democracy Now! Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike at 8, Gianni in the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, Rich checks in at 1 with I Don't Sound Like Nobody, Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3, and Brand New Day with John Florence at 6 a.m. I'll leave you with Gomez, Whippin' Piccadilly, the turbo version, on KRCL 90.9.